0: Are you looking to scale up your healthcare solution in partnership with leading healthcare companies such as Anthem, Chicago Pacific Founders, Evernorth and United Health Group with over 200 million members? Applications are open for the 2021 UCSF Rosamund ADAPT program. Startups developing breakthrough technologies that improve healthcare efficiency will receive $100,000 cash support and connections to payers. To apply, please visit rosemaninstitute.org. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the health technology podcast with your host, Christine Winoto.
1: Our guest today is Chris McFadden, managing director at KKR, a leading global investment firm working with healthcare companies. Chris is also a founding member of the COVID Patient Recovery Alliance, a contributing author to MedCity and a board member of several medical and healthcare companies. In this episode, Chris and I begin by discussing what it means to work at a global investment firm, which leads to some big questions about medicine in the post-pandemic world. What are the benefits and drawbacks of telemedicine? How will increased awareness of mental illness affect medical system? And how can healthcare companies continue to adapt as the world reopen? Here's our conversation. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for joining me this morning.
2: Really pleased to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so I I found you've been in the industry for many decades. and I thought it would be good for our listeners to hear about your background and the career path that you took that brought you to where you are now and why healthcare as well.
2: Sure. Uh, pleased to share uh, at least a summary. So uh, I studied uh, political science uh, and finance as an undergraduate. Um, healthcare was not necessarily part of my um, plan or vision. Um, but had an early job working in the securities industry for a research analyst who focused exclusively on healthcare and healthcare delivery, health information technology and other sort of infrastructure elements. And what I found about that is it was this really um, organic intersection of things that I knew and had studied, right? Understanding policy and policymaking understanding the allocation of scarce resources, understanding how you finance things, particularly in areas like research and development and the role that the capital markets can play uh, in supporting those endeavors. And so it really appealed to me uh, on a couple of um, uh, aspects. And I think moreover, uh, you know, it's such an interesting um, and complex market. And, you know, the opportunity to continue to learn and be uh, more uh, knowledgeable, you know, I think likewise appealed to me. I think healthcare is one of those markets you can spend your whole career and still feel like you're learning about new aspects of the outcomes research or uh, payment reforms, uh, for example. And so for about a dozen years, I wrote um, what we call sell-side equity research. So I worked for an investment bank, including Goldman Sachs, we wrote industry and company research reports about publicly traded companies like McKesson here in San Francisco and HCA, the hospital company, and Cerner, the large health information uh, technology company. But one of the things that I realized is that the more innovative companies often never found it. Uh, their way to the public market, that they were either acquired by a large company or otherwise uh, you know, went through a different life cycle. And so made the decision to leave uh, the research and publishing part of my uh, responsibilities and move into the principal investing uh, area, what we called our special situations group at Goldman, later a private equity firm uh, based here in San Francisco and now with KKR. Uh, which is a large multi-asset class investment firm, but really always employing the same toolkit, which is understand, you know, what's happening in the market, whether that be the needs of patients, reimbursement policy changes, et cetera, um, understand which companies are doing it really well and can demonstrate a strong health economic outcome and then financing or investing in those companies to help them uh, achieve their objectives. And, uh, you know, have continued uh, to do that work uh, in small companies, medium-sized companies uh, and large companies and, uh, you know, continue to think it's an area with a lot of dynacism, which is generally good for, you know, people who are putting capital to work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So maybe you can tell us, share us a little bit about KKR. It's like really big company, but, you know, if you're not in the sector, probably people are like, what is it?
2: Yeah. So KKR was uh, started as a partnership uh, roughly 45 uh, years ago. Uh, Henry Kravis and George Roberts, which are two of the founders, continue uh, to run the firm uh, as co-CEO today. Um, What started as a company that was focused on one product, which was, you know, leverage buyouts or large private equity transactions, uh, has now developed into a a firm that has many investment strategies, uh, buyout, growth, energy, infrastructure, credit. Um, and we think as a firm, having more ways to partner with uh, management teams and companies uh, just allows us to be better uh, at our jobs. Um, the firm spends a lot of energy focusing on culture, um, really maintaining the integrity and the continuity of what the original founders uh Wanted to create in KKR, you know, survives on, even though we have grown both in numbers and uh, in assets under management. Today, we're just under $300 billion of assets under management, but we're less than 2,000 employees uh, in the global organization. And so, You know, even though we have some benefits of scale and some benefits of the size of the organization, it's really important that we maintain that partnership culture, that we work hard to be collaborative with our colleagues across region, uh, across industry, across asset class, and hopefully do best by our clients. Because, you know, we never lose track of of the fact that at the end of the day, our real clients are firemen and policemen and healthcare workers and other employees who have contributed to some pension product and are expecting that pension to generate adequate return to support retirement. That's really, you know, our mission and obviously an important one and one, you know, we want to give our uh, 100% of our effort toward.
1: So can you give us like uh, an example of a case study of how KKR worked with a healthcare company? Because I know you have the biopharma, they have the healthcare services. You also have the medical devices. Uh, how is that KKR role and what that means to a company who are interested in working with KKR?
2: So thanks for the question. You know, from my perspective, we approach almost all investments in a very similar fashion, right? Firstly, uh, KKR is always going to be a friendly suitor. You know, we're never going to approach a company in a hostile or unwanted way. Secondly, you know, we're looking for businesses that are some inflection point where new capital, new network, uh, new expertise could significantly improve performance. And then finally, you know, we're looking for alignment on, you know, what are the ways that a company or management team could, you know, benefit from whatever resources KKR may be able to bring. That might mean new capital to enter new markets. That may mean technical expertise, either in-house with our capstone group, which is an in-house consulting organization, or through outside experts that we have existing relationships with. Uh, that may mean our network within an industry, or regulatory, uh, or other audience. And you know, often you know, combining those things with an already high-performing team is a nice formula. Uh, good for the business and its employees. Uh, good for value creation for the organization. And again, really important to us. Really good alignment between KKR and our investors uh, and the leadership team and existing shareholders uh, that we'll be partnering with.
1: And how do you say your model different from, say, a venture capitals?
2: Yeah, that's that's really a staging question. You know, venture capital firms, and here in the Bay Area, we are blessed, obviously, in and around Palo Alto with probably the richest concentration of venture capital firms uh, in the world. Um, you know, those investment professionals are looking at Early stage companies, sometimes pre-revenue, right? Often pre-revenue. Certainly in the context of biotech and life sciences, but often too in the in the context of technology businesses that have a particularly disruptive, um, really incrementally innovative idea, or taking advantage of some market dislocation in a way that produces Uber or produces some of the other you know well-known now mass adoption. Um, consumer or uh, technology solutions. A KKR is not a venture-stage investor. We really look at businesses that have already established themselves commercially, already have a product that's been approved and is in market. Uh, it may be a $50 million company, it may be a $5 billion company, but you know we aren't taking the risk that the business or technology isn't going to work. Instead, we're asking ourselves, you know, can the commercial adoption be accelerated? Can we enter new markets? Are there things in cost structure that we might be able to improve? Other, you know, ways to help a company reach that next threshold uh, of commercial success.
1: Okay, well, that's good. Thanks for the overview. Um, I thought maybe. Uh since, you know, you've been following the industry for many years. And um, can you give us an overview of how the industry, the healthcare industry technology has evolved for the last decade and now how you think it will transform in the next five years?
2: Yeah. So I think it's really interesting because, you know, when we're talking about healthcare technology for the moment let's let's focus our conversation around those that touch the provider patient interaction there's lots of healthcare technology but i think the most interesting is what's happening at the intersection of provider care and patient experience and as people will remember you know prior to 2008 it was you know a, a long story about how paper intensive how uncontemporary, how underinvested the U.S. healthcare delivery system was in the sort of, you know, technology tools that other industries had developed, you know, decades earlier, right? And so we get Meaningful Use, uh, which was a federal subsidy for providers to invest in electronic medical records, essentially take us out of a paper-based filing system into a digital Based filing system, Um, big institutions, mid-sized institutions, small practices overwhelmingly use that subsidy to digitize the underlying medical records that they use, as well as to do things like e-prescribing and other workflow tools that help increase efficiency um, and compliance. In many ways, we're just coming out of that first step. Um, Now, the second step is, well, if you really have digitized the vast majority of um, information and transactions in healthcare, what does digital transformation look like? How do we reimagine the patient experience? How do we reimagine how clinical productivity can be increased? Because we're now using these tools in a more sophisticated way uh, than just digitizing an existing paper process, which is really what the first stage of this is. And so when you look at all the enthusiasm around digital health, that's really what I think that means. Digital health is now bringing all sorts of tools to bear, sitting over an existing now digital infrastructure and asking ourselves the question, how could it be different? How might we monitor, for example, diabetic patients' A1C level that doesn't include pinpricks and instead can be done with a long-standing device that communicates through the phone, maybe back to a physician practice, right? So Dextacom now is really well understood, really widely adopted, a good example maybe of that sort of experience. And I think you could find use cases throughout um, the, both the incubators as well as increasingly uh, commercial stage uh, organizations. I would just add a third layer to that, which is maybe a separate topic, which, okay, well, now how does telehealth shape that experience as well, which begins to really think differently about the physicality of the physician and patient interaction, not just about how we do uh, some of the workflow that surrounds um, that traditional experience.
0: This podcast is sponsored by brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And so with the
1: pandemic, we see that... the acceleration of people uh, adopting a lot of the virtual care and some people can't wait to go back, some people don't want to go back. And uh, also, how do you think that, you know, pandemic will impact what how we deliver care in the next five, 10 years, and especially with a lot of the digitization technology that happened already in the past decade.
2: Yeah, and that's a really good point, right, because the the point you just made is is the necessary stepping stone to something different. Um, listen, I think if we were having this conversation in January of 2020 and we were talking about telehealth generally, we might highlight things like telestroke where there was clear adoption, particularly outside of academic medical center, um, but otherwise, I think we would be talking about a technology with a lot of promise, but not necessarily close to what I'd call gold standard mainstream clinical care. What the pandemic accomplished was to force all stakeholders, patients, providers, regulators, uh, health plans, government policymakers to experience telehealth in some form or fashion, either directly or through a loved one. And I think for the most part, come away recognizing this is a really effective modality. There's a lot of value to be able to change, as I mentioned earlier, the physicality of my uh, patient physician experience without losing or decaying the quality of the care. And at the same time, you know, it benefiting patient outcomes because you know more likelihood that you're going to get continuity of care more likelihood you're going to get regular and consistent follow-ups, more ability to be responsive to people who are mobility challenged in one way or the other. Um, And so to me, that now opens up the aperture to say, okay, we have the underlying uh, digital infrastructure. We now have a willingness and a capacity to think differently about care delivery. Where does that take us? And I think that's where we are. And I think there's lots of paths that it might uh, imagine certainly leading institutions like UCSF uh, seemingly are using it in pretty um, progressive ways to offer patients choices Um, in the first instance. I imagine over time, however, it's also going to redefine the competitive landscape, because the fact of the matter is, is that if I want to see a patient who's not in the Bay Area, um, that was a hard catchment area conversation for a provider like UCSF today. If I wanted to have a patient in Nevada or Reno or Missouri or Florida, um, you know, depending upon the disease state, um, that could very practically be a UCSF patient. UCSF patient, and so that phase of the dislocation um, is probably still in front of us, but I think is going to be something we're going to have to think through. And there's a lot of investment capital that's following to help um, explore some of those ideas in more detail.
1: And so I think, which is great, right, to have the access to high quality care.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: and I think the telehealth opened up, I mean, the pandemic opened up our eyes, like we can see our doctor, but I think at some point there's a portion that right now we still cannot do it just through the video video call, I guess, what do you see that trend like? You know, how can we make the telehealth become a smarter or more realistic way of providing care without driving to San Francisco if you are up yeah. in Nevada?
2: Yeah. So I, I think that's a, a totally appropriate question, right? There's two elements of it. There are certain, certainly, some um, clinical areas like behavioral health where you know, a virtual um, uh, experience between provider and patient might actually be a very durable um, relationship. And in fact, in some uh, cohorts, in some populations, preferred than in-person and more clinically effective. Now, it doesn't mean that that patient may be seeing their Uh, provider only from home, they may go into a clinic in their local community where there is an infrastructure around them, but their provider may still be, you know, in San Francisco or Seattle or Salt Lake City. So that's one aspect of it. Um, I think the second aspect of it is, you know, I think we want to focus on those conditions like chronic conditions where really the the clinical value to outcomes and health economic uh, benefit is the continuity of patient management over time, right, which is a combination often of in-person testing and other outpatient uh, experiences or outpatient care, much of which uh, can be architected uh, on a remote basis. And so I think it's not productive to think about as all or nothing. I think it's productive to force rank the places where it's probably best suited um, to think more expansively about network and local uh, provider support for the infrastructure, testing and otherwise. Um, but, you know, there's still going to be, I think, value that accrues to those leading institutions that have uh, academic reputation, have the specialty programs, have have the um, specialist care um, that people are going to seek out. And, you know, local providers are going to have to um, consider that in their, you know, commercial uh, planning uh, process.
1: And yeah, so one the other thing, thank you for that answer. Um, the, the, the pandemic also highlight a lot of the issue with the mental health. And yes. there is a lot of uh, short shortage of uh, mental health uh, provider. And I think yes. that telehealth is something that hopefully changed that. Uh, I know that you're on the board of telepsychiatry. Um, but I think also at the same time, there's a whole slew of technology out there right now who's trying to address this. And is this going to be like, there'll be a pocket, that everybody's you know targeting certain population. And nobody's going to be the winner. I mean, nobody, Everybody's going to be a winner because there's no one big winner. And as an investor, how do you know which one is the one that you should focus on?
2: Yeah. Well, there's a there's a I think a, a, a cliche that is is used because it's true, which is, you know, the pandemic in many ways accelerated trends that already were observable in our economy or in other aspects of our lives. Um, and I think that applies to behavioral health. I think going all the way back to Patrick Paddy Jr., mental health parity, right, as a starting point as well as some, you know, um, economic analysis that has been done in the past by actuarial groups such as Milliman to look at the um, the real cost of underinvesting in behavioral health, but then having higher medical costs show up in those patient populations that were otherwise being underserved uh, by the plan design that they were presented with, and so the combination of the both started. Uh, a slow migratory process, at least in my opinion, in which certainly commercial health plans were seeking to reconnect medical care and behavioral care into a more um, uh, uh, unified or at least coordinated uh, plan design. And now comes COVID, right? And COVID creates new sensitivity, uh, new awareness, I think less stigma, which is an incredibly positive thing for both our healthcare system and for our society. And then finally, the point that you make, a lot of really um, innovative technologies which do a great job of identifying patients in a variety of different ways that maybe would benefit uh, from uh, uh, increased access to behavioral healthcare resources, all of which is expanded the demand side of that market, right? We've expanded the demand side because we are... Uh, making more benefits available, at least for those under commercial health plans. We're increasing demand uh, because uh, we are um, uh, destigmatizing mental health services generally. And now we have these technologies which are almost proactively reaching out and encouraging people uh, to seek care. And yet we had access issues in 2019, 2020, right before we did any of this. And so the supply side of this market Um, has to find a way to respond. I mean, it is the unfortunate truth that some 40% of all psychiatrists are only cash paying, uh, will only take cash pay uh, patients. Um, That is a huge portion of our provider community that is simply unavailable uh, to the sorts of patients that are at the center piece of some of the market structure innovations that we just described. I do think Uh, telehealth can play a role here because it has the opportunity to balance supply demand by region. You know, the fact is we have uh, better supply on the coast. We have less supply in the center of the country. Telehealth can be an effective resource uh, to try to balance out some of that geographic disequilibrium. Um, At the same time, right, we have to think differently about um, uh, physician extenders, uh, social workers, and nurse practitioners who can be really additive uh, to uh, the pool of providers that can help provide uh, best care. And so there is a lot of investment capital uh, that is pursuing that opportunity. Um, it's probably got you know a lot of runway to go because the demand formation sides of this market are themselves just in the early innings, it's going to take a while, I suspect, for the supply side uh, to uh, to uh, accommodate uh, the demand that's been created.
1: And I think also there's a couple things with the the whole telehealth, the digitization, the access. I mean, we, you mentioned about a lot of the uh, providers tend to be on the coast, but then also as we learned during the pandemic, it, the access to Wi-Fi, high-speed internet is not nationwide. Yep. And also the fact that uh, the the workforce might have to change. You mentioned earlier about the social worker, how they can be also be part of the solution. How do you address that?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, listen, I think there are no I think there are no easy answers. And I would add the fact that, you know, it seems probable uh, that the DEA will finally address the congressional direction with regards to Ryan Height. Uh, and making essentially teleaddiction, um, across state border teleaddiction, a permitted service uh, in a way that policy and regulatory restrictions have prevented, only adding to, you know, the dynasism uh, of this market. So um, I don't think it is an easy answer, except, you know, continuing uh, to You know, try to organize delivery networks that have as much flexibility and as much clinical productivity architected into them, not to be a disadvantage of quality of care. I think just the opposite. The the lowest quality care is the patient who can't, for weeks or months, get access to appropriate mental health services. The far better uh, quality of care and therefore outcomes is a patient who can get same-day or near-same-day access, uh, or at least assessment, uh, and begin to be worked into uh, a provider solution that meets them where they are for all the dynamics that you rightly described, geography, uh, broadband access, uh, access to a clinic setting, et cetera. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, the more we do that, uh, the more we relieve some of the supply-side challenges that, as I say, I think are going to be with us Uh, for uh, a period
1: of time. And I think the beauty of this, it also attracts a lot of people who are interested in the healthcare that did not come from healthcare. And a lot of the tech people who felt like, well, I've done a lot for the tech industry. uh, And this is a a big area that the country uh, definitely need. And oftentimes they don't understand the challenges of healthcare. And how do you, you know, can you tell us about like why companies that's outside of health space and when they try to make the healthcare investment, it become challenging for them?
2: Yeah, no, it's it, it, particularly where we live. It's a, it's a really uh, sometimes controversial point. Um, obviously, there are some brilliant um, innovators uh, in the technology space, uh, many of whom either have their own personal experiences or other motivations to want to come in to uh, the healthcare field. At the same time, you've got some very well-known, well-established large corporations who uh, have tried sometimes uh, on more than one occasion to sort of get a foothold in the healthcare market also with limited success or mixed success over time. And so uh, I think the question is why? Um, And I think there are some common themes at least that I've observed. I think, you know, firstly, you know, um, the decision making um, profile in any new technology, whether it's pharmaceutical or digital health, simply isn't uh, comparable to what you see either in a consumer environment or in a traditional corporate buying environment. Uh, you don't have the influence of physicians um, as a user uh, as you do in healthcare. Uh, you don't have the regulatory uh, dynamics, uh, whether that's state boards of medicine. Which are fifty very uh, unique and idiosyncratic organizations, uh, FDA or others uh, that weigh in. Um, I don't think you have the same underlying insistence an appropriate insistence that you know that safety be unquestioned uh, relative to bringing a new technology to market. All of which frustrates and I think uh, often limits uh, this the. Um, Commercial success of of those individuals. Not that there aren't examples, uh, but just trying to bring you know a new a, a way of thinking from another industry to healthcare um, it, again has had a relatively low success rate, as opposed to partnering with individuals who are experienced in the realities the the limitations of new technology adoption in healthcare, understand, for example, what health plans require to reimburse for a new product or service or understand you know, what this consensus making is going to be at an institution like UCSF who's going to adopt a new uh, health information technology tool set. Um, you know, that way you're properly setting expectations. You're, you're capitalizing the business appropriately to take into account The long lag time that often uh, is required, and generally, you know, a better outcome uh, for all stakeholders. So, you know, listen, healthcare is obviously a large portion of the US economy. It's too large and, in many ways, um, too far behind other industry verticals for people not to want to bring their ideas and their innovation. I think we should celebrate that. My caution to those groups would be do your homework uh, and make sure you know, you sort of understand, you know, the experience of those uh, that have come before you.
1: I think you start seeing a lot of the large corporation now bringing people who have the healthcare uh, background. I think it has changed. I think maybe in the beginning, they feel like the healthcare needs dis- disruptor and disruptor usually tend to people, people from the outside. And yep. that's probably what happened. I know I'm short on time, but, um, One of the last things that, you know, now things are slowly opening up. And um, what are your thoughts about, you know, company and healthcare technology have to do to keep on growing as the world reopens?
2: Yeah, listen, I think uh, one of the important adjustments I anticipate is that, you know, gaining access uh, to providers. Facilities, practices, hospitals—the which was already tightening, right? Leading into the pandemic, um, restrictions on uh, the ability of, of sales reps, for example, to access physicians' practices. You know, the I think sort of the fatigue on some of the large uh, medical society meetings, um, and where which was also kind of a key place to build awareness and adoption for uh, innovative technologies. I think that's only going to be. Um, hardened and sustained uh, post uh, pandemic And so you know particularly for those uh, upstarts those more innovative or disruptive technologies that don't have the decades-long kind of institutional access uh, that some of the more well-known companies do I, I think adjusting for that and finding new tools and techniques to build awareness and gain adoption is going to be critically important. Uh, digital marketing, obviously is, is far more effective and and targeted uh, than it was uh, in the past. But even thinking beyond that, you know, I think is gonna be a, one of the lessons that hopefully people learn early, as opposed to think we return to 2018, 2019 and find uh, that the land has moved uh, from underneath you.
1: Yeah, I hope we don't have another big pandemic, at least not my lifetime. <laughs> For sure. So, but, well, thank you so much for your time and your insight and
2: um, um, hope to see you again soon. It was an absolute pleasure to be with you. I thank you for the invitation and look forward uh, to following the work of you and your group further.
1: Thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto our content writer, Kelly Muscat, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.